I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Before there was any legislation, before the Anti-Woke Act, before House Bill 999, before any of those pieces of legislation were passed, there were already steps that were being taken to restrict the type of scholarship, the type of teaching, the type of inquiry that people could be engaged in on the University of Florida campus. So what I've been seeing since I've been here is like a steady, very aggressive push from white right-wing sources. That was, I misspoke. I meant to say right-wing sources, but that's probably correct. White right-wing sources to attack aspects of Black culture, Black and other people of color teaching and learning, and certainly to go after other disfavored communities, such as LGBT communities and programs that serve them at the university level. I think that more people get involved as it applies to them. So as it started, it was like, okay, K through 12. Then it was the AP African-American history course. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis defending his decision to block a new advanced placement course on African-American studies from being taught in Florida schools. He says Florida's current standards for teaching black history are, quote, cut and dried history, and that multiple lessons in that particular course go too far. Then he started replacing presidents, including our president has just changed here at University of Florida, and then requesting all of the health information from queer students. We want education, not indoctrination. This course on black history, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. All of this kind of started, I would say, maybe two years ago. Actually, to be honest, I was talking to some colleagues not too long ago, and we said, well, you know, there's always been struggles at the University of Florida. They have a long history of racial oppression in the state and on campus. They have a history of being connected to the enslavement of African-American people. And I was also interning in the Capitol when all of this legislation started. So for me, and I think for a lot of people, the effects were pretty immediate. I know for my mom, she does run a school, and so she had to start looking at her curriculum, starting to think about, are there things I need to remove from this? The teachers had to start thinking about, are there books I have to take out of my classroom so that I don't lose my job? And so the more people who got affected, not the better, but kind of the easier to like see a common ground with each other and be able to say, you and me both are seeing this happen, then you and me both will do something about this happening. So the expansion of the changes that are being brought on has brought more unity amongst the people who are being harmed by these changes. We've been speaking with students, educators, organizers, and thought leaders in Florida and across the whole country about the attack on advanced placement African-American studies and how we should view it as a small piece of a larger attack on Black thought and our ability to teach accurate, American history. My name is Kenneth Nunn. Sophia de la Cruz. My name is Kristen Anderson. I am a professor of law emeritus. I have taught at the University of Florida for over 30 years. I'm a third year undergraduate political science major. I'm a fourth year undergraduate anthropology major at the University of Florida. In this episode, we're digging deep into the implications of the College Board's recent decision to strip advanced placement African-American studies of essential concepts, 
concepts like structural racism, the Black Lives Matter movement, Black queer studies, the new Jim Crow, and two concepts that hit particularly close to home for me, Black feminism and intersectionality. We'll also talk about the nationwide protests that we're organizing with our partners in the Freedom to Learn Network, coming up on May 3rd. First, to catch you up on what's been happening, let's start with a timeline. Because the story of the College Board's decision to strip AP African American Studies of its core concepts has a lot of twists and turns. The College Board is the $1.5 billion nonprofit behind SAT tests, advanced placement, or AP courses, and other measures that act as gatekeepers on the path to higher education. On February 1st this year, they released a new framework and objectives for an AP African American Studies course. The new course had been in works for quite a while, but it had been stalled until 2020 when the protests in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders created an opportunity for a reset. Interest from many young people who were looking for ways to understand what they just witnessed, what many of them had been a part of, created new momentum for the course. These are the objectives of African-American studies, to understand our history, its contemporary implications, and its implications for how we think about and act to embrace an emancipatory future. A College Board official reported that colleges had previously not been willing to offer credit for the course were now more amenable after the summer of protests. The College Board was also keen to fend off scrutiny of just how few Black students are actually enrolled in AP courses. 15% of high school students in the U.S. are Black, but they are only 9% of students enrolled in AP courses, according to Education Trust. So, the College Board set out to curate the course in consultation with hundreds of high school and college instructors, combing through Black Studies course offerings from institutions across the country, highlighting key concepts and topics that the course should include. Not surprisingly, core themes emerged, including the Black diaspora, Black feminism and intersectionality, and the language of race and racism, including structural racism. Of course, given the impetus for the course, it wasn't surprising that Black Lives Matter, reparations, incarceration and abolition, and other contemporary topics were also included. The course was piloted in 2023 to a lot of excitement, but also, as expected, to some controversy. Now, the revised course that was unveiled on the first day of Black History Month in 2023 was a shadow of the original version. Its most transformative elements, from Black feminist thought to Black Lives Matter, were excised from the course requirements. And while it isn't unusual for course content to be reviewed and altered, the timing of this move in combination with the content that came out, it's definitely worth scrutinizing. That's because, as you just heard, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been very vocal about the removal of content he calls divisive from school curricula. Under the guise of protecting kids from indoctrination, DeSantis threatened to ban the AP course before it was even released. His sweeping attack on education, which is sure to continue if his speculated bid for president becomes reality, has outraged academics, students, and communities at large. They've also left educators in a position where they can't effectively do their jobs. Here's a reporter from Florida on that. Now, I talked to a teacher who is currently instructing this class at a high school, and she is just baffled by this assertion that this is somehow injecting politics or ideology. This is a study of these topics that have been instrumental in civil rights movements of their era. Like, how do you talk about the civil rights actions of the last 20 years without mentioning the Black Lives Matter movement? The College Board's choice about what course content to remove clearly didn't happen in a vacuum. Although the College Board is supposed to be nonpartisan, the elements of the AP African American Studies course that were excised are in alignment with the state of Florida's abysmal curricular restrictions on African American history 
and thought. And just to be clear what they didn't want, Florida provided a chart with their most wanted ideas and authors out of the course requirement. Now, in full disclosure, I was one of those on the most wanted off list, along with giants that anyone in their right mind would be honored to be associated with. Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, Audre Lorde, Alice Walker, Kathy Cohen, Robin Kelly, Roderick Ferguson, just to name a few, all gone. Also gone, Black feminism, intersectionality, structural racism, Black queer theory, Black Lives Matter, abolition, pretty much the frameworks, the grammar, if you will, that brings our history right up into the contemporary world. When pressured to explain their decision, in a statement on their website, the College Board said their course revisions were made before DeSantis campaigned to strip AP African American studies of this content. It was a baffling defense, even before contrary evidence emerged. That contrary evidence came in the form of records released by Florida's Department of Education. Records that prove that the College Board had been in conversation with Florida's DOE about the course in 2022, before the changes to the course were finalized in December that year. In November 2022, the Florida DOE sent demands for these troubling course changes to the College Board. The board replied that items such as systemic marginalization and intersectionality were integral parts of the course and could not be removed. In short, at that point in time, the board was still doing the right thing. But then the course was released with changes that aligned with the anti-woke cabal's demands. Because sure enough, by February 2023, both of these core concepts were revealed to be excised from the course goals. This suspicious about-face where the college board suddenly changed their tune about the essential elements of the course weeks before the course release, is hard to interpret as anything but caving to political pressure, given the timing and the documented contact between the DOE and the college board. So this notion that the college board could definitively say that it wasn't swayed by DeSantis's camp no longer holds up which may be why its claims about the timing of their revisions are no longer on their website. Then there was another red flag. In the New York Times, an official explaining the rationale behind the new curricula claimed that intersectionality had been purged because it had been, quote, drained of its meaning and filled up with political rhetoric, unquote. Of course, if all concepts that the right wing has attacked are thought to be drained of meaning and filled with rhetoric, we might just as well say goodbye to democracy, to elections, to anything that gets in their way. The language bows to DeSantis's claim that intersectionality, anti-racism, and other essential elements of Black American thought are somehow indoctrination while anti-woke efforts to whitewash enslavement, genocide, and segregation apparently are not. And then, folks, just as we were going to release this episode, we finally got definitive proof that all of the little clues you just heard, all of the things we've been sounding the alarm about for a few months with our partners in the Freedom to Learn Network were right. First, the College Board released yet another statement on its website, hinting that the course might change in the future. Still, there was no acknowledgement that they shaped the course to fit Florida's anti-woke demands, no backing off of their claim that the edits were made only by the input of experts and longstanding AP principles and practices. Now, the timing made some folks speculate that maybe the College Board was trying to get ahead of something, Sure enough, those suspicions proved correct. On April 26, none other than the Wall Street Journal released a damning expose complete with leaked College Board emails, all that revealed an inconvenient truth. The College Board was not simply following the lead of their experts in excising materials from the course. As one scholar put it bluntly, 
we all know this is a blatant lie. It was her unit that was substantially purged. And not only was it not done at her behest, it was edited behind her back. Her conclusion about the terms of this battle that we're facing are plain. The issue is not why we must fight against DeSantis, she said. The issue is why we must enter battle with a weak partner. Full mic drop there. The Wall Street Journal rightly concluded that the College Board is in another PR spin cycle. And it isn't over yet, so get out your popcorn. The story is still being written. At some point, though, the spinning has to stop and accountability has to begin. The slightest twist brings to mind that old proverb, Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Y'all know the rest. This is a story about profits, but it's also a story about courage and the lack thereof to fight back. As of now, the college board's hopes to operate in all 50 states puts it at the mercy of folks who can dictate what our students will be offered everywhere, material that comports not with our highest aspirations, but with the nation's lowest common denominator. And we know how that's worked out in the past when large southern states like Texas, along with organizations like the Daughters of the Confederacy, used their veto power to determine what students across the country would learn about slavery, about genocide, about other ugly chapters of American history, and about the struggle against them. So don't think for one minute that this is just a red state problem or a historical one. For those whose power rests on miseducation, it is a gift that keeps giving. The College Board's dance with DeSantis is alarming because it's clear evidence that our mainstream institutions are far from capable to standing up to the policies that undermine our democracy and bring us to the brink of fascism, where heads of state are enabled to edit history to their liking and stifle the free exchange of ideas. However, a swift and precise counterattack is underway. People are speaking up and employing critical thinking about racism to spread the word about how these threats to our education system are threats to democracy itself. In a new column uh, for the New York Times, uh, Mara Gay writes, quote, The question now is whether the majority of Americans in institutions like the College Board are able to see the backlash, clearly not as some kind of culture war sideshow, but as the very lifeblood of the anti-democratic, sometimes violent political movement gaining currency in the United States. Black history is a direct threat to this movement. It humanizes the enslaved and their descendants. It opens the door for exactly the reckoning that makes interracial coalitions possible, giving life to democracy and pluralism and stripping would-be tyrants of their power. We at the African American Policy Forum are joining thousands of academics, artists, advocates, policymakers, students, and concerned community members from around the world to form a countertide against this mounting backlash. This group, called the Freedom to Learn Network, has been strategizing for weeks leading up to our Day of Action on May 3rd. We're organizing rallies in D.C. and New York City that day, where we'll march to the College Board headquarters to remind them that this situation is far from rectified. And across the country, local activations from book circles and teach-ins to exciting social media campaigns and Freedom to Learn TV, you can learn more about what's happening near you at freedomtolearn.net. On the road to our day of action, We've had some invigorating conversations about how these attacks on education fit into a larger context of our rights and our freedoms in this country and elsewhere. To unpack all of this, I sat down with Cheryl Harris, the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Professor of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties and Vice Dean for Community Equality and Justice at UCLA Law School. 
Robin D.G. Kelly, the Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA, and Janae Nelson, the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Here's our conversation. So this controversy has not emerged out of a vacuum. It was preceded by two, if I might say so, intersecting dynamics. The opening of an opportunity for racial progress prompted by the massive outpouring of social movement energy in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's killings. And then that was closely followed by a backlash to that possibility that has created the environment that we are in now. This current controversy represents the collision of both these dynamics. So let's start there. So Robin, I wanna come to you first. 2020 saw the largest protest action I think that we've seen in the United States, there were protests in the name of racial justice, protests that happened in all 50 states with people demanding new ways of framing race and racism. These protests were multi-generational and importantly, multi-racial. So help us understand more about how that moment shifted the terrain. Right, well, thank you, Kim. Of course, we call this Black Spring. You know, and the origins of this rebellion really go back at least three decades of organizing work. And remember, you know, Black Lives Matter as a movement was eight years old at the time of the rebellion. So there's all this organizing against state-sanctioned racial violence. People want to transform the criminal justice system, policing, the carceral state. And they're really dedicated to ending structural racism, poverty, war, inequality based on race, gender, class, sexuality, and disability. And I should add, one of the big demands, of course, was reparations, which is not a new demand, but one that, of course, bubbled up. It wasn't just justice for George Floyd. It was actually transforming the whole criminal justice system and the economy. But let me just make two quick observations for our purposes. Of course, well, three. One that rebellion was a prompt to return to what was the College Board's efforts to create an AP African-American Studies course. Two other observations is that the entire history about which I'm speaking, those three decades, at least since the 1990s, really needs to be mandatory in any AP African-American Studies course. In fact, it should be mandatory in a U.S. history course. Because when you read the framework carefully, you know, that period from the 1970s until the present often misses these social movements. And I would argue that those rebellions, those social movements of the last 30, 40 years, may be the most militant insurgencies in U.S. history. And the last thing I'll just add is that the very analyses that those social movements use, the critical lenses, you know, are the very analyses that we're fighting for to keep in the curriculum, critical race theory. Black feminism, a materialist analysis, queer theory, deep interrogations into racial capitalism. And that's what's foundational to the movement. So if the movements inspired a course, then you would think that the ideas would also be in the course as well. Mm -hmm. To their credit, the College Board actually said that the possibility of of launching this and, and realizing it after years of it just being dormant were made possible by the demands that were prompted by the uprising. And I have to say, just for my own you know, observation, I never heard the term structural racism used as frequently and by as many people as in that period afterwards. I mean, the president of the United States, has any president of the United States ever used the term structural racism? So it was an opening. It did create conditions of possibility, demands for understandings of race and racism that went beyond the idea of prejudice or police brutality as a product of a bad apple. So this opening is happening and there's energy flowing through it. But then there's another trajectory that comes out of that. And Janae, I want to go to you for that, because after every sort of significant possibility opens up, one of the things that we know from looking at our history is that there's backlash. And sometimes the backlash is more momentous and more robust than the opening. So can you talk to us about the laws that laid the foundation 
That picture, of course, starts with the executive order launched by President Trump. It picks up steam with the litany of legislative attacks uh, against the entire racial justice apparatus, which includes practices, policies, knowledge. Um, Walk us through the creation of the anti-woke moment along with its legislative embodiment. Sure. And and thanks for that question. I, I do want to make a point about backlash because you're absolutely right. Our history teaches us that whenever there is progress, there is backlash. And the backlash is almost commensurate with the possibility, with the potential that any particular progress holds. And so what we're seeing now is a reflection of that moment in 2020 that held so much promise that, as you said, had multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-generational awakening and support that was incredibly threatening to the existing status quo and power structure. And what we saw as a result was an attempt immediately to try to tamp down truth, to try to create a victimization in the mentality of many white people in particular to feel as if they were being discriminated against or that somehow this backlash threatened their ability to thrive in this country rather than see a shared future. So it was rife with division, rife with means of ensuring that all vectors of protest, all vectors of dissent were tamped down upon. And we saw that most clearly in an executive order issued by then-President Trump, one that you, Kim, and I were immediately incensed by, and that was Executive Order 13950, which many may recall was the first time we really saw the language that suggested that any any trainings, any materials that made white people feel guilt or anguish about themselves as a race or about gender or about any feature that they hold dear in this racial hierarchy was at that point going to be outlawed if the speaker or actor was a recipient of federal funds. So this affected the military. This affected all federal programming. This affected even grant recipients. And as a result, the Legal Defense Fund, representing the National Urban League and the National Fair Housing Association, brought a lawsuit challenging that executive order. And Lambda Legal did as well in another jurisdiction. And Lambda Legal was able to obtain an injunction. And fortunately, we did not have to continue the litigation because once President Biden assumed office, he rescinded that executive order. However, that was a blueprint for many states to enact legislation that literally borrowed the same language from that executive order, that language of victimization, that language of division, that language of censorship and suppression. And we saw that proliferate across states. And, you know, APF has a wonderful demonstration of that on his website. And you showed the map of how these laws are in almost every single state. They haven't all been enacted, but have been introduced in states. And one of the most, I would say, active iterations of this is the law in Florida, commonly referred to as the Stop Woke Law, which is a misnomer. That is a law that Governor DeSantis put forward, and that's the one that we presume he's suggesting would be violated by this AP African American Studies course. But it's just an example of what was unleashed following 2020 and where the states and states' rights have sort of picked up this fight and this mantle and are infecting curricula across the country by legislating out history, legislating truth out of curricula, and legislating censorship. And, you know, Janae, we've been talking about this for years, right? But they've been saying all along, this is exactly what they were trying to do, sully the ideas, undermine the history, frame it all in terms of basically reverse discrimination. So Cheryl, I want to turn to you to to dig a little deeper into what is at stake here. So Robin told us about the activation that was the source of possibility. Janae has been giving us a quick window into the counter movement that was created and how it has now been an expression that's taken over the law in many states. And, And I've said that some part of this was basically gentrifying some ideas and filling it with meaning that never was part of critical race theory in particular. But there is a way in which critical race theory is relevant to this conversation. 
A lot of people have misunderstandings about these ideas, but in fact, this prism may help us understand what's going on in this moment. Yeah, Kim, it's interesting. In some ways, there's a deep irony here. The ideas, the picture, the caricature of CRT that's been promoted by these kinds of laws. And I should add parenthetically, it's not just at the level of the state, but a lot of this is happening at the level of local school boards. One of the projects we've been doing here at CRS is the CRT Forward Tracking Project, which is building off of some of the work that you and other organizations have done looking at the state level. But we've been trying to drill down to see how this is metastasized at the school board level. But I guess I would say that in one way, the deep irony is that critical race theory itself as a concept and as a mode of analysis really has a lot to say about the kind of moment in which the college board is in. At one level, I think the college board, as you say, understood that there was a moment to push forward with the development of a rigorous African-American studies course. And it kind of, I think, saw itself and certainly portrays itself now as a well-meaning handmaiden of these aspirations of Black students and those that are committed to Black studies. But of course, that's not exactly entirely who they are. They are a site of institutional power. They are certificators of knowledge. And they're a $1 billion corporation that's engaged in making a product. And seen a lot in the newspapers about the accusations that the board caved to Florida's demands, the board's vigorous resistance of that account And it's assertion that uh, it really was not, in fact, appeasing Florida at all, that its decisions were really a consequence of its own sort of neutral, routine policies, how it goes about producing a course. But I think in some ways, CRT itself can shed some lights on why there's still a problem, even if one accepts the board's account of what happened. And that goes to this issue. Critical race theory has long rejected the idea that racial harm is only the result of intentional bigotry, only the result of intentional conduct. In fact, one of the core CRT concepts is the idea that normal race-neutral processes can and often do produce racial harm and subordination. Neutral colorblind rules actually produce disparate impact. That's basically one of the concepts in law that is often itself under siege, by the way, not coincidentally, because it points to the issue of structural racism. But The point here I'm saying is that understanding that normal processes can produce racial harm helps us understand that even if we accept the claim that the board uh, changes were removed, were not appeasement, but were a consequence of their normal decision-making procedures, the result was that the ideas that Robin mentioned at the beginning, the ways in which the scholars were initially represented in the course and then were removed, Not only were these ideas and people not defended from spurious claims and attacks, the attacks were actually legitimated by the board's decisions. So what I'm saying is, even if we accept the board's assertions that it was not, in fact, bowing down to Florida, the result of what happened was, in fact, a a process of their procedures, their neutral, presumably race-neutral procedures, ended up producing a serious harm. And that, I think, is actually one of the stories that CRT tries to help us see, how racial subordination and harm is often the result of unintentional conduct, but it occurs in the context where people are not looking, so to speak, in the way in which racial power is shaping the terrain and the context in which they're acting. So understanding the history that Robbins described, understanding the political context and the legal context that Janae just mentioned, It is entirely impossible to understand how the board would think that it could just simply step into that mix, along with asking the several hundred scholars in African-American studies to devote time and energy to the development of this course and basically sail into the storm without a single idea or plan as to how they were going to navigate and confront the very clear obstacles that were in front of them. Yeah, yes. And and so much of what you're describing, the way that certain practices, neutral potentially on their face, produce outcomes that are anything but, 
is a story that is grounded in African-American studies. One sees these patterns through connecting past practices to current practices, the way institutions carried forward values and ways of doing things that created functional exclusions that sometimes have names. If we look at what may be in the offing with this, we have an educational system of AP coursework that might be seen as Jim Crow in the sense that in some states, students can opt into more contemporary material. In other states, they cannot. That is kind of how segregation used to function, right? You could ride wherever you wanted to when you were in the northern states. When you crossed the Mason-Dixon, you had to get up and go to the back. And many institutions did that in order to function across the United States. That's functionally facilitating the deep differential patterns and practices that are a reflection of race. So Robin, let's come back then and go into a deeper dive. Let's talk about how we might think about primary and secondary materials. Right. You know, I was, I'm still digging what Cheryl said about what it meant to withdraw, to sort of include and withdraw our names, you know, which constitute secondary sources from the original curriculum, because there's consequences for that. You know, and I just thinking about that hard. And in terms of your question, you know, you can't have an interdisciplinary course, which African-American studies is, without secondary sources. Secondary sources are not just sources from a distance. They're specifically sources that actually introduce concepts, frameworks, and theories that make sense of the facts, even question what facts are. So when we're told that, okay, well, we want courses where you just have primary sources as facts, and then we'll figure out ways to interpret them. And as you know, the College Board suggested or promised to create a kind of virtual library of works that students could draw on, if we don't actually have a kind of in clear sense of conceptual ideas, frameworks, and theories through secondary sources, then it's going to be hard to provide exams, for example. You talk about sort of Jim Crow, students from different states who don't necessarily have access to the same materials, who have teachers who may want to introduce other kinds of secondary sources, may not be in the same position to prepare for exams, for example. And finally, it's not as if the other AP courses are bereft of secondary sources. You know, if you look at the USAP history course um, on page 220 and says student success in the course also depends on exposure to an analysis of multiple secondary sources. Secondary sources of all types can provide a broader and more substantive perspective on topics addressed by a textbook. So we know that they're there, we know they're necessary. But to go back to what Cheryl was saying, there was a framework with secondary sources and authors named, and that gave an indication of what are the key or the core ideas. Once they're withdrawn, the question is, will those core ideas be reinserted? Yeah. So can you tell us just a little bit more about that particular history around racism, the battle within AP courses and how it relates to this course? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I lived through that. In fact, this is deja vu. This mm. 2014, as a result of teachers' complaints about you know, how difficult it was to teach USAP history without real framework, and they had so much to deal with. A group of scholars got together with the blessings of the College Board, and they rewrote the curriculum framework. And it was much better. It dealt with things like race and racism in a more robust way, settler violence, the ideology of manifest destiny, you know, centering slavery as the main issue around the Civil War. All that was there. And then, of course, if you recall, the right went off. Republican National Committee passed a resolution emphasizing its quote-unquote negative aspects of our nation's history while omitting or minimizing positive aspects. Of course, it's the same thing that DeSantis and his crew are saying. They call for congressional investigations. Ben Carson, our, one of our favorite Negroes, said, you know, if most people take this class, they're going to be ready to sign up for ISIS. And that's how bad it was. And of course, they won. The right was able to force the college board, and, and I give the college board credit, for a year, they resisted, they pushed back. But in 2015, ultimately caved. 
And they did things like they eliminated pretty most discussions of racism. The word racism doesn't appear in the 220 some odd page curriculum framework. And words like racist, xenophobia were eliminated. The biggest critique was focused too much on race and gender as divisive concepts. So that was pretty much tamped down. And in American exceptionalism made a comeback. You know, that is America is exceptional because it's democratic character. It is a freedom-loving country because there's no no other countries is like America, right? So all that was a victory for the right. And that's still there. There's still petitions going on. And I have to give credit to the Zen Education Project for really being on the case of trying to push, push, push a much more robust way of teaching U.S. history. The last thing I want to say is there's a significant difference between 2014 in 2015 and now. And that is that now we're dealing with pressure from state legislatures backed by law. Before, these were conservative scholars and they had the organizations like the National Association of Scholars and all this stuff. Um, but, but they didn't have the power. They had the power of the Republican Party, but not always the power of the legislative apparatus. And we're going to see more of that as we move forward in the months to come. Which is why it may be a misnomer to call it a culture war. I mean, we are not talking about just a war that's playing out in the op-ed pages. We are talking about actual use of the state to dictate the terms upon which we can know ourselves. And that comes pretty close to some very scary definitions of a kind of society that facilitates that. So back to law, and Janae, I want to come back to you because we're also looking at the resurgence of arguments that many thought had been defeated in the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education. So states' rights is everywhere and not, you know, kind of ironically, I mean, it's doing a lot of the same work that it has always done. And I'm particularly keen to get your thought on the role of states' rights and the projection of the innocence and vulnerability of children. Yeah, so we know that this has never really been about the protection of white children and um, their development as human beings, because if it were, then the Supreme Court would have taken very seriously the arguments that we made in Brown versus Board of Education, where we demonstrated that not only was segregation harmful to Black children in the Black psyche, but it was equally harmful to white children in that it gave them a false sense of superiority. It gave them a sense of accomplishment and moral authority that had not been earned. So we know that this is not a genuine protectionism of white children in a way that's legitimated by any psychology, any behavioral science, any data. This is just another way to maintain a white supremacist hierarchy. And we see the same thing occur every time there's an opportunity and an effort to integrate our educational system, not just in terms of the people, but to integrate other histories and stories into what is more broadly the history of America, right? And we know that at every time, not just in the AP history course, but when we were in the 60s and Black studies emerged as a potential topic for college students in universities across the country, the Chicano studies movement, that any attempt to integrate and demonstrate the mosaic of experiences that create the American story, that those attempts are always met with backlash. And we can draw a direct line between the efforts that are happening, not just in the AP course, because it's much bigger than that. And I do want to emphasize my concern is less about the AP African-American studies course, because if we're going to be honest, a fraction of students in this country, a fraction of the public school students even have access to AP courses in this country. My deepest concern is what the capitulation, or as Cheryl said, even if we take them at their word, just the failure to navigate this attack on our scholars and on our studies in a sophisticated way, it sends a message to so many more vulnerable teachers, librarians, and students that they too must change their behavior to fall in line with the censorship efforts, the intentional excision 
of their own histories from state curricula and from their own education. So I find that this is a deeply dangerous scenario, whether it is intentional or not. And you can draw a direct line from these efforts to the fight that we see before the court in affirmative action, where there is an argument that you can't consider race in determining one's merit in being admitted to college or university when there is a compelling rationale for diversity for the benefit of all students. So I think that all of this is to try to deny our history of racism in this country, to try to promote a convenient myth of colorblindness while engaging in some of the most harmful and direct acts of discrimination that we've seen in modern history. I'm mindful of the fact, for example, that this is happening alongside attacks on voting. And one of the reasons why the attacks on voting, if you kind of look at our map, you can see that the same states that have anti-woke laws also have voting suppression laws, the suppression of our voice, the suppression of our votes go hand in hand. And literally the condition of that possibility was to impose a, a sort of colorblind frame on contemporary voting patterns. And so we basically lost much of the heft behind the Voting Rights Act on the basis of a very similar, the past is racial and racist, the present is not, and colorblindness is the thing that rules the day. Cheryl, I want to pick up a thread. So over the last weeks, you know, the college board has assured us both publicly and some of us privately that political influence played no role in the formulation and the decision-making around the course, that the decisions were made on the expertise of hundreds of scholars that are often cited and just pedagogical considerations. But on Monday, it was revealed in an interview with one of the personnel of the college board that the decision to remove all mentions of the word intersectionality in the required part of the curriculum and also removing it from one of the course goals was justified on the premise that the term had been drained of meaning. So this begs the question, drained of meaning for whom and by whom, whose perspective? Now, the College Board represents this judgment as neutral, I guess, but the revelation that among those who have been behind legislation which promotes the censorship of ideas is that one person who is behind some of this legislation was actually highly placed in the College Board itself. So I'm wondering, should this give us pause? What does it suggest about mainstream institutions' relationships to these extremist sensibilities? Well, Kim, I think it's the proverbial fox in the hen house in a sense, although I wouldn't want to describe the college board in this analogy as just the sort of innocent hen house. We have to understand what their function is. They are sort of a monopoly on the question of how certain information is certified, packaged, and made available to students. And it's quite true, as Janae says, that this is really just a thin slice of what is available to students, but its impact is actually quite profound because if, in fact, the College Board or if, in fact, courses like what the College Board was initially trying to produce cannot be taught, then that information is not just censored for students who want to take the AP course. That information is censored for any students anywhere who want to access it in any ways because we can see the connections between that and the actual book censorship, the removal of these books and these works from libraries being censored and so on. One of the contradictions that you point out, the state legislator from Indiana, Todd Houston, I believe he actually resigned last year when it came out that he was collecting over $400,000 a year. At the same time, he was an architect of laws that were designed to censor anti-racism is really, you know, that's maybe like down in the weeds for some people. But I see it as actually a really interesting emblematic example of how the right has normalized thought suppression. One would think that the College Board as an institution that embraces academic freedom and asserts that it's about delivering information to young people would not have high up in its ranks somebody who is actively seeking to suppress knowledge. But other than the fact that this notion that somehow anti-racist thought threatens to harm whites, that's really at the core of a lot of these laws. The idea that 
anti-racism is anti-white. This actually was a slogan of the far right. The White Genocide Project actually put up billboards in several places throughout the South years ago that were denounced by local communities, some of them predominantly white communities, for recognizing them as severely white supremacists. What's interesting is that that concept has now become normalized. That is actually at the core of certain kinds of political campaigns, not just DeSantis and not just those on the far right. This is actually something that can be promoted, advanced, put into legislation, and people can hold jobs high up in organizations that claim to be embracing a certain kind of academic freedom, but nevertheless, accept people who are promoting this idea. And I dare say, he may be the highest example, but he's probably not the only one in the organization that believes that somehow anti-woke laws are justified because they're seeking to balance out the imbalance and indoctrination that ostensibly is produced by anti-racist thought. So to me, it's sort of exemplary of the way in which institutions actually come to accommodate this very core idea, which is manifest not only in the question of what happens in a curriculum, but as we're pointing out, travels itself throughout the entire political discourse in terms of what people can say, how even organizing on behalf of Black people can itself be named racist. It's both that and it provides victory. If all forces that are behind anti-woke laws need to do is attack ideas, is to recode them, redefine them, and that's enough to say that therefore they don't have a role in education or in an advanced course. I mean, if anything, the opposite should be the case, right? One thinks that confusion does not lead to, therefore, no education, but making the case for more. Just another way in which the presence of anti-wokeness in mainstream institutions raises questions about whether the center, as they, they call it, will hold against the efforts to take over the law to pursue a particular kind of political strategy. One of the problems is this notion of neutrality, yes. uh, the idea of a neutral principle, sort of being able to work our way through this. That ends up placing anti-racist and racist thought on the same moral plane, on the same conceptual plane. And therefore, the argument is, well, free speech means you have to actually allow both to flourish. And somehow in the marketplace, it's all going to get sorted out. Well, we know what the marketplace has actually done. And I think why this concept, which is actually one that liberals and conservatives have embraced, ends up producing this situation where anti-racist speech can be targeted and people still actually argue that this is not censorship. Yes. And, you know, we could talk a while about neutral principles. Even liberals in response to Brown versus Board of Education were flummoxed. They couldn't figure out whether one could support the opinion through a neutral principle, because after all, you just have whites' desire to segregate, blacks' desire to integrate. How are you going to choose between the two? So this has been part of liberal ambivalence about black freedom from the very beginning. Janae, can you speak about what aspects of current Black life this framework would preclude us from an effort to transform. And I, I'm thinking in particular that in some of these states that have this kind of legislation, aren't there aspects of civil rights law, like disparate impact that couldn't even be taught under a, a frame like this? I mean, it reduces racism and discrimination to, you know, a cartoonish type of activities, one that has no resemblance to what our history actually is. Obviously, there are individual actors and, and entities and institutions that have engaged in blatant intentional discrimination. But we also know that racism has been embedded in our systems and our policies. We know that even in the concept of algorithmic bias, right? The fact that you have data that has been tainted by racism that will go into a race neutral, you know, technological apparatus that seems like an invisible force. It seems like a completely objective. It's not even a human being making the decisions. Right. But what comes out on the other side is a direct reflection of the data that has been infected with historical and even contemporary racism going in. And it'd be very hard for us to prove in a court of law 
how that impacts the decisions that rely on that tainted data, how that impacts people's ability to get loans, the way their credit histories are ranked, their access to housing. If you look at even appraisal bias, right? It is very difficult to pinpoint individual actors in certain of the ongoing discrimination that many Black people and other marginalized communities face. So it would make the use of disparate impact, which has undergirded so many of our civil rights statutes, virtually impossible, one, to teach, but this is a pathway to trying to outlaw that concept altogether, which has been under attack for quite some time. You know, disparate impact allows us to show that there is a disproportionate numerical emphasis that lives out against a particular population, and there's really no other explanation for it other than race or the confluence of race and some other social or socioeconomic factors. And if we're not able to address those consequences and point that out, then we are inevitably going to be mired in ongoing systemic inequity in this country. And I see really no way to rebalance power or economic access or education equity uh, or to fix the ills in our criminal legal system without that doctrine working to reveal what that impact is of racism through systems, as, as I said, that work in a very race neutral and somewhat invisible way. Yeah. So, Robin, I want to lift up one thing that you said and just ask you to comment on it. In conclusion, you were saying that the goal of African-American studies is to really be about examining Black lives, the structures that produce premature death, that make us vulnerable, the ideologies that both invent Blackness and render Black people less than human, and perhaps the most important, the struggle to secure a different future. So I want to ask you, how should we think about the struggle in the face of efforts to erase, marginalize, and decommission the knowledge and the methods and the objectives that have been derived from the historical struggle for Black studies? Sure. I mean, that's an excellent question. And that is the question I think that brought us here, because we all know that this is bigger than AP, African-American studies. It's bigger than Ron DeSantis in Florida we are facing fascism at a national and global scale right now. And it's very, very clear. And so the war on knowledge and knowledge production is in many ways, it's a war on democracy, our war to be able to create civic institutions. It is a war on our ability just to live together and for people to survive. I mean, there's a relationship between like struggle for a social safety net and whether or not we can actually speak about racism and other forms of oppression. So these are dangerous times. I'm hopeful that this fight is also helping us prepare new generations to critique the systems that shape our lives. If anything, this is the final thing I'll say, the kind of double talk and the attack on whether it's critical race theory, intersectionality, the attack on, on all forms of knowledge that's critical is an attack on critical thinking. And Henry Giroux says this all the time. If we don't have some means of being critical, critical of the country, critical of these regimes, then we're stuck. You know, so our future of democracy depends not just on the vote, but being able to be critical. And, and what's Black Studies but critical? Black Studies was formed in struggle. <laughs> So it's political automatically. It was formed in a long history just to be able to read and write, let alone critique the United States and its projects, critique imperialism and its projects. So that's what we're going to do. And whether or not it gets in the curriculum, we're going to still do it because we don't really have a choice. Our survival depends on it. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, I was thinking that in many ways, as Robin says, we're at a pivotal moment. And what you refer to in terms of the silencing of Black testimony, there's a long, long, long history of that. What I think we're at the moment, though, is we have to recognize the threat that's on the table and recognize that we have to really reject the kind of distancing moves that I think you had flagged at the beginning, Kim, where initially at the outset of this attack, people said, well, I don't really teach CRT. It's not in K to 12. You know, I do DEI. I don't do CRT. 
that there are whole ways in which I think people misunderstood or misread what was actually at stake. One of the things that's really important to do is to understand that one of the things that the right has been very successful in doing is to present these things as though they are somehow elitist concepts that don't have anything to do with everyday life. And as Robin just pointed out, actually, this is the genesis of Black studies, the genesis of critical race theory came not out of sitting in an ivory tower and trying to think about ideas, but came about out of trying to give voice to, to testify about the conditions of Black life, what it was that it meant to be in a country that claimed to have denounced racism and still finds ourselves with a foot on our neck. Nobody is, I think, under the delusion that the College Board is going to be at the vanguard of what we need to do. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're expecting. This is just simply a moment where it becomes crystal clear about the centrality of the ability to speak. That is what we're fighting. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Robin. So, Janae, coming to you for your final thoughts, we have talked a lot about how many people don't see the connection between the fight to sustain anti-racism and the fight to sustain our democracy. You are at the helm of the LDF. You are involved in efforts to both present this case in the court of public opinion and in the court of law. Can you talk about what is on deck for LDF and and why it's so vital that people understand what's at stake? Absolutely. And and I want to acknowledge we're not in this fight alone. The work that AAPF is doing, the banned book bus, the ways in which you have brought such visibility to this issue from the very start is just so commendable. And I'm very grateful to have AAPF as a partner in this fight. You know, obviously we do a lot of work in using the power of law to challenge these threats that are becoming sadly legal themselves. I think the most effective thing that we can do is to prevent these laws from being passed in the first place. So we have been very active in state legislatures in helping to beat back these laws to present testimony, to help prepare local individuals to push back against these laws, to tell the history of local jurisdictions so that people can see themselves in these stories. They can see that their history is complex. It's one of turmoil. It's one of triumph. And to silence that or to prevent the next generation of people from that locale to understand from whence they come is actually a detriment to everyone. So we try to make this a shared struggle and fight and underscore the targeting of these laws at particular communities and how pernicious that is. If we're unsuccessful at beating back the passage of one of these laws, we will sue. And we have sued successfully, even in the state of Florida. In August of last year, we filed a lawsuit with the ACLU of Florida, the National ACLU, the law firm of Ballard Spar. And that case is Purnell versus Board of Governors. And it is a direct challenge to HB7, again, you know, infamously known as the Stop Woke Act. And we challenge it on the ground that it's vague, it's racially discriminatory, and it violates the First Amendment. We have eight clients. They are a range of individuals, seven professors who teach using materials that either touch on or expressly incorporate critical race studies and critical race theory. And of the professor plaintiffs, five of them are people of color. And I want to underscore that because this affects professors of color, this affects Black professors directly, but it affects anyone who wants to teach a truthful rendering of our history. We also represent a student who is a Black woman and a senior at Florida State University. And we are asserting that this law was intentionally discriminatory. It violates the equal protection of the 14th Amendment that it violates the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment as a form of viewpoint discrimination. And it also violates the basic First Amendment right to freedom to receive information, that when you are part of a university setting, you have the right to an equitable education and the right to have an open and honest dialogue about America's history and to have access to that information. We also are saying that this is a vague statute and should be void for that reason as a violation of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, because it's hard for educators to even navigate the content of HB7 and know whether they are in violation of it or not, Mm -hmm. right? We would have never thought that the rich content put forth in the AP African-American Studies course 
would violate Florida's law just because it included queer studies or black feminist ideology or content about reparations and structural racism or critical race theory and intersectionality. So it is very difficult for educators to even navigate this law because it is vague in so many ways as to what it is targeting as content. So if we were actually successful, I should note, in challenging this very law, the HB7 out of Florida, we got a preliminary injunction which bars its enforcement in universities and colleges across the state of Florida because our lawsuit is on behalf of university professors and a university student, that injunction does not apply to the K-12 setting, which is why the state of Florida is still moving forward with its very vicious attempts at tamping down on the ability of students, and and really the students who probably need this information the most, our youngest students, from getting access to information. But we are in the process of building a challenge on that front as well, and we will continue to fight these laws as we did when the first executive order came out in 2020. We will continue to push back against these laws because for us, the truth is the only way for us to access justice. We have worked in and trafficked in truth for over 83 years in order to tell the stories of Black communities and Black individuals who have suffered at the hands of racist actors and racist systems. So for us, this is an existential fight for the work that we do and for the communities that we serve. Thank you so much, Janae. And it is an honor and a privilege to be in community and partnership with you in all of this work. And I want to say on the question of community and partnership, I think what this entire moment is making clear is that it is time for institutions to be heard, to make their position known about the effort to censor and to suppress and to silence. This is not a moment to try to navigate around it, to negotiate with it. This is a moment that is as vexed as the moment after Brown versus Board, where school districts and other institutions had to decide, were they going to be on the side of equity and inclusion, or were they going to help facilitate or at least participate in the framing of massive resistance? So if anything, the question is, how do we all work together to address this significant threat, not only to our education system, to public education, but to our democracy itself? We all should be in partnership along the values that we share. Folks, we can't wait to have you join us from your hometowns across the nation on the National Day of Action. Now that's coming up on May 3rd. It's the beginning, but it sure won't be the end. On Freedom to Learn Day, stand up for your right to learn history, for our right to understand the present, and to prepare for a better future with unrestricted access to knowledge. Anything you do, however small or large, is part of the effort to insist on literacy. Visit freedomtolearn.net to find out more about how you can join, including finding templates for rolling out your own campaign. Whether it's a banned book readathon, a teach-in, a march, or a fiery social media post. Take a picture of what you're doing. Share it with us. Every effort counts. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced by senior producer Nicole Edwards with support from Kevin Minofu, Kristen Penner, Marjorie Bostwick, Heather Malvo, Sam Hoadley-Brill, and Ashley Julian. Mixing by Sean Dunham. To support our show, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. We'll be back soon. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.